If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn with me to Psalm 143, which we read a short while ago. Psalm 143, and I'd like to speak to you this morning, the Lord helping me, from the first six verses. Uh, I'm due to be back with you in a couple of weeks, the Lord willing. Uh, I hope in that time to have a few others with me, uh, namely my wife and two children. Uh, we're hoping to take a short break in the Peak District, uh, and it'll be good to have them with me on that occasion. And when I'm with you in two weeks' time, I uh, hope to uh, take the second half of this psalm uh, on one of those services in uh, a fortnight's time. Uh, the psalm naturally divides up into two portions. Uh, you'll notice at the end of verse 6, you have the word selah. Uh, now, there's, it's not known exactly what that meant, but it seems to be fairly uh, well agreed among uh, those that have in investigated these things that it was a, a musical pause uh, when the Jews were singing the psalms and it signifies a, a change of direction, a, uh, a new section uh, in, in the, whichever psalm that that occurs in. And so it naturally divides the psalm into two. Uh, we'll hope to consider the first six verses this morning and then the, other, the second half next time. Let me just read at this time the first two verses. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my supplications. In thy faithfulness answer me, and in thy righteousness. And enter not into judgment with thy servant, for in thy sight shall no man living be justified. Now, the particular circumstances of this psalm are not given to us. They're not spelled out. Uh, like, for example, they are for many of the psalms in the 50s. If you look at uh, Psalm 56, Psalm 59, uh, Psalm 52, 54, many others, uh, in the title of the psalm, which is inspired, God breathed that out as much as he did the body of the psalm, uh, you will understand what was going on in David's life which led to him writing the psalm. Uh, but in Psalm 143, we're not told. Uh, there are, however, clues in the main body of the text. And verse 3 in particular narrows it down to one of two periods in David's life. Uh, he speaks about the enemy persecuting my soul and smiting my life down to the ground. Uh, we know, therefore, really that this is either when Saul was pursuing David or later when Absalom, uh, David's son, uh, was after his father. Uh, now with regard to the latter, uh, let me just recap the history of what happened to you in case you're uh, unfamiliar uh, with that. Uh, you remember that David should have gone out to war but didn't, stayed at home, saw this uh, beautiful woman Bathsheba uh, bathing uh, on the rooftop and he committed the sin of adultery uh, with Bathsheba and then wishing to hide up the consequences of that sinful act he called her husband Uriah back from the battle uh, and tried to get him to uh, visit his wife but that didn't work so in the end he had him sent back and put in the fiercest part of the battle so that he died. Uh, David was guilty then of adultery and murder. Uh, that sin seemed to have been
been gotten away with for a while, but then Nathan the prophet came to him and told him that story, you remember, about the lamb, and had to say to David, you are the man. It's you I'm talking to. And God then spoke to him and said that he would be chastised uh, as a consequence of what he'd done, and that the sword uh, would not depart from David's house. We read that in 2 Samuel chapter 12 uh, and verse 10. Uh, now therefore the sword shall never depart from thine house, because thou hast despised me, and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house, that is, from within your own family, David. And I will take thy wives before thine eyes, and give them unto thy neighbour, and he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of this son, for thou didst it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. And so subsequently, uh, Amnon was killed, that was David's son, but then after that, Absalom uh, came after David. He was a very uh, handsome man, we're told, and he promised people that they would all have justice for all their uh, feelings of injustice, and was very popular. And David was aware that he was under threat, that he might come to Jerusalem and kill him, and so he simply had to get out and run for his life. And there are two things particularly in this psalm that suggest that David penned this psalm while he was running from Absalom and not on that occasion when he was much younger and running from Saul. Uh, first of all is really the greater melancholy in this psalm compared to those we know he wrote when he was uh, running from Saul. Uh, there is a, a much greater sadness in, in David's life uh, now because of what's happened, uh, but also because this is um, his family that's turned against him. It is not just Saul, the king. Uh, it is that much more personal. So that's one reason uh, why I would tend to lean towards this being written later. Uh, and secondly, the sense of guilt that lies clearly on David's conscience. Uh, that is brought out particularly there in verse 2. Uh, because all the while Absalom was pursuing David, David knew that this was because of what he had done. This was because of his sin against Bathsheba and Uriah. And running from Absalom, and with that awareness that it was a self-inflicted wound, uh, left David feeling very, very low. Uh, drove him to despair. Uh, but in that despair, it also drove him to prayer. And that is what we have here. Uh, we have here David uh, in his despair reaching out to God. Uh, so taking as our theme for this morning, reaching out to God in our despair. Reaching out to God in our despair. And we'll see three thoughts from this in the way that David reaches out to God. First of all, his appeal. Uh, secondly, his lament. And thirdly, his resolve. Uh, the appeal, the lament, and the resolve. Uh, verses 1 and 2 see David make an appeal uh, to God. He puts in a plea before his God. And in verse 1, that's made up of uh, three particular requests. First of all, to hear his prayer. Secondly, give ear uh, to my supplications uh, I think as it is in the ESV, my pleas for mercy, uh, in thy faithfulness answer me. So hear, give ear, and 
answer me. The language shows that this is someone who means exactly what he says. I say that because it's very easy, and all of us have done it, I'm sure, we come to prayer and our mind can be uh, in a totally different place and we're not fully engaged in what we are about. But David most definitely is. He means business. He is earnest. He is desperate for God to give ear to him, for God to hear his prayer, for God to answer that prayer. And that earnestness in the first place is directed to God's faithfulness. To God's faithfulness. In thy, right, in thy faithfulness, answer me. David, of course, cannot point to anything in his own life as a reason why God should answer him and hear his prayer. And nor can we. Uh, but David finds reasons in God himself as to why God should hear him, despite what he's done. Because God is a faithful God. Uh, he's revealed himself as the hearer of prayer. Uh, that is what he has said. We, we read that in our call to worship in Psalm 65. O thou that hearest prayer. And he is also the answerer of prayer as well. In Psalm 91, for example, and verse 15, he shall call upon me, the Lord speaking, and I will answer him. Uh, that is a, an unconditional promise by the Lord. He will call upon me and I will answer him. And so David appeals to God's faithfulness. That is for God to do as he has promised. Uh, God is a covenant God. He's bound himself to his people, and he's bound himself to them in a whole range of promises, all centering in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so David appeals to the heart of God by means of his faithfulness. But also notice his righteousness as well. Now that may seem something strange for David to mention, particularly given what follows in verse 2, uh, given how David is aware of his sin. Uh, but he's, he's not asking God to deal with him by himself on account of his actions, but he's asking God to act in accordance with his character. Because God is a righteous God, and he always does that which is right. Isn't that a wonderful thing in a world full of wrongs, to know that God is a God who always does right? And so he calls upon God to act in accordance with that righteous nature. That is to defend the godly. The godly aren't perfect, but to defend the godly and to visit uh, judgment upon those that persecute them. Giving the ungodly, you might say, their just deserts. Uh, Psalm 31 and verse 23 uh, brings uh, this truth out. O love the Lord, all ye his saints, for the Lord, on the one hand, preserves the faithful, and on the other hand, plentifully rewards the proud doer. He does both. He, re he rewards with the proud doer with what he seeks, but he keeps and preserves his people. Well, David, even though he's in great straits and in despair, he has recourse to the faithfulness and to the righteousness of God. He fixes his attention on the character of God as he prays. And that must be always the way that we pray, uh, to remember who our God is as we come to prayer. And that brings reasons for us, encouragements for us as we pray. We must pray that God will fulfil his promises and do what he has said. Uh, the Puritans had a great uh, way of putting it. They used to say God likes to be faced with his own handwriting. 
Um, so, Lord, this is what your word says. Will you not do that? Will you not fulfill that promise in my life? Because you are a faithful and a righteous God. But God, uh, uh, rather, David doesn't only appeal to God's faithfulness and his righteousness, but secondly, he appeals to God's mercy. Uh, he says there in verse 2, Enter not into judgment with thy servant, for in thy sight shall no man living be justified. David pleads with the Lord not to deal with him in terms of strict justice because he's rightly afraid of the outcome as God does. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who should stand? Nobody. And the sense appears to be, in David's words, that since it's just not possible for any human being to be justified on account of what they've done, then, Lord, what chance do I have with all my sin? with all that I've done in the past and which I'm now suffering the consequences of. He says, in, in, in your sight, no man living will be justified. And therefore, Lord, what about me? He was, as I say, especially conscious of those sins that had brought all this about. And though he accepted these uh, as God's uh, fatherly uh, chastisement <coughs> upon him, and that the Lord intended it for good, and that he, he was still in covenant relationship with the Lord, David knew that if God acted against him as judge, strict judge, then he could not stand. That's why I read Romans 3 earlier, uh, because that is the, the whole, that is the one great truth, if you like, that comes out of that chapter, that we are all sinners, and there is none of us righteous, no, not one, None that seeks after God, uh, and so on. None that understands, none righteous, no, not one. And as verse 20 puts it, Therefore by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Uh, trying to do that which is right, trying to keep the law, well, that actually only shows us, if we've understood it rightly, that we've broken it, that we cannot keep it. And there can, therefore, be no one justified, that is, declared righteous in God's holy sight through what you and I do. And so David pleads for the Lord not to, as it were, bring him to the bar of justice uh, as a private person by himself. We must pray the same, and we can pray the same, because God has entered into judgment with someone else on our behalf. He's entered into judgment with his son. That's what he did at Calvary. He, he said, rather than entering into judgment with all these my people, I will enter into judgment with my son, and I will judge him in their place and in their room. Our only plea can be for God not to commence proceedings against us. Why? Because he's already done it in Christ, and to believe that which Christ has done is fully satisfying of all of God's justice, so there's nothing left to uh, pay for us. Uh, no judgment against God's people. There is, Paul later says in Romans, now no condemnation, none at all, to them who are in Christ Jesus. But when we come to prayer, this is the 
focus of what David is about here. We, we need to remember that. It's so easy to let these great truths slip from our minds when we come before the Lord in prayer, but to remember the great truth of Christ having satisfied God's justice and therefore the way is open for us to come to God in prayer. And yes, the devil will accuse us and tell us we're unfit and unworthy to come before the Lord and we feel it ourselves if we've done wrong. But Christ speaks on our behalf. His wounds and his hands and his feet show that he has suffered as the just for the unjust to bring us to God. And on those occasions when sin doesn't so lie upon our conscience as it did with David, well, at those times we're prone to trust in ourselves or trust in the sweetest frame, as the hymn writers put it. Uh, I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Even if we seem to have been having a, a good time spiritually, we dare not rely on that, upon our positive mood, but we must depend upon Christ. And remember that we are always debtors to God's mercy, because in his sight no man living will be justified. Well, this is really the first part of David's prayer as he comes to the Lord, as he reaches out to the Lord. He first of all begins with God himself, and then puts in his appeal for God to be merciful to him, because he has, knows he has no hope of being heard at all, unless that mercy is in place. But then in the next two verses, David goes on to give the reasons for his prayer. And uh, really this is a lament. Uh, that is, he is bemoaning before the Lord what is taking place in his life at that time. He's describing it to the Lord. And as I've mentioned uh, through our message this morning, uh, this was likely at the time Absalom rose up to usurp David as the rightful king. And David here spells out before the Lord uh, what is happening and the effect that it is having on him, his inner consciousness. It, it's a lament concerning his life. Lord, do you not see what's going on and how bad it really is? David had to run for his life, knowing that Absalom would probably kill him if he got, got to him. Now, I guess that most of us have probably never had that experience. Maybe you have, uh, of having to run for your life because you know someone wants to kill you. But perhaps we've had the feeling, uh, a number of us, of great angst or anguish. For just a few seconds, we, we realise our life is in real danger just because something's happened. Maybe a car crash. You just see the car about to hit you. You just don't know what's going to happen for a split second you realise that anything could happen. David had that. Uh, he knew his life was under attack. And so he describes to the Lord that the enemy has persecuted my soul. He has beaten down my life to the ground and he has made me to dwell in darkness as those that have been long dead. Uh, Though we can be very much alive, there are times when we can feel like our life has almost gone, that there's, we're, we're empty, dried up, uh, almost uh, like David describes himself here. Uh, he has made me to dwell in darkness as those that have been long dead. 
There's a darkness, there's no light. That must be what goes through the mind of those that are tempted and even those that follow through with suicide. There's no light at all. They feel their life is pointless and worthless. There's nothing left at all. Uh, David's words could be translated as feeling like a putrid corpse. That is how bad, how low he feels. And that is an experience that God sometimes calls his people to go through. Uh, There is joy in the Christian faith, and we bless God for that. The joy of sins forgiven, of peace with God, of a home in heaven, of a saviour to walk with, a Bible to read, a God to pray to, fellowship, singing God's praise. There is that. But it's not happiness every day. Sometimes there are uh, hard experiences that the Lord calls his people to go through, akin to what David went through. Psalm 88 and verse 6, we know of course this speaks ultimately concerning our Saviour, but uh, there the psalmist says, Thou hast laid me in the lowest pit, in darkness, in the deeps. Sometimes the light of God's presence can be temporarily taken away from us, so that we don't discern the Lord anymore, and we feel almost like we are dead. At that time, uh, the Lord tells us, uh, for those that have no light, Isaiah 50 and verse 10, uh, who is among you that fears the Lord, that obeys the voice of his servant, that walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and stay upon his God. If we cannot discern or perceive the Lord, then we can just have to rest simply in who he is. Faith is then reached its zenith, as it had with David. But he describes uh, to the Lord what the enemy had done to him. And then secondly, the consequence of that in his own experience and consciousness. Therefore, he says, is my spirit overwhelmed within me. My heart within me is desolate, or as I think it is in the ESV, is appalled. Uh, We often speak about being appalled uh, at someone else, you know, it's, they've done the unthinkable. But uh, the idea here is of uh, being uh, crushed, uh, of being lifeless. Uh, he's full of consternation and disquiet. Uh, one commentator describes it as being benumbed. So David seems to have lost all feeling and uh, just cannot see his way through uh, his, uh, where he's going to take his next step from at all. He's overwhelmed. His heart is barren and desolate. He felt ready to give up. Uh, Matthew Henry said David was a great saint and a great soldier and yet even he was sometimes ready to faint in a day of adversity. He was ready to faint, just to pack it all in and give up. Well if David is a great saint and a great soldier felt that well must we be surprised that the Lord's people also feel that way too. And David told all this to the Lord. He explained it frankly and openly to his God. He he didn't seek to hide it or try and dress it up in some way and put a a positive spin on his feeling, try and pull himself up by his bootstraps uh, and uh, and, you know, the old, good old British step up upper lip, that kind of thing. No, he spelled out to the Lord exactly how he felt. 
what a blessed position you and I are in if we are God's people, that we can come to him and we can tell him exactly how we feel. And he will receive us. There are some people that we might go and speak to and tell them how sad and how low we're feeling and we know they won't be interested or they'll just tell us to get on with it. There won't be that sympathy. But we have a sympathetic saviour who is touched with the feeling of our infirmities, who is tempted, tested in all points like as we are, yet without sin. And we can bring our complaints, our moans, our troubles to him, describe them, and he is going to be deeply interested, intimately interested in what is going on. And he cares. He knows. He knows the experiences we pass through. Just read, for example, Psalm 22 and see all the things that Christ is saying there in Psalm 22. So David here teaches us the benefit Indeed, the need for us to be real and honest with the Lord. We, we don't need to fear the Lord rebuffing us or just turning away from us because we're so weak and pathetic. No, we can come and rest in his presence and know that he will receive us and he will care for us. As the hymn writer said that we sung earlier, when all things seem against us to drive us to despair, we know one gate is open, one ear will hear our prayer. Even if nobody else will listen to us, the Lord will listen to us. He will give us his ear any time, day or night. We can come to God and describe all our complaint and moan because we have a saviour who is empathetic not only sympathetic well with such troubles within and without what could David do where could he turn well he's turned only to the Lord and he thirdly resolves uh, uh, in the last two verses of our passage this morning verses five and six he resolves that he is going to do certain things and the first thing that David resolves to do is to remember the God of history. This is the first thing David resolves to do, to remember the God of history. Now, assuming that this was written later in life, when David was running from Absalom, uh, David was an older man and he was a wiser man and he had the benefit of experience of being able to look back on the way God had led him and provided for him, helped him and kept him all that God had done in the past. Uh, but not only what God had done for David personally and individually, but what he'd done for his people as a whole. David could call that to mind. And what he'd done in generations past uh, with Abraham and Jacob and Isaac and Moses and the children of Israel coming out of Egypt and all those things. He could remember the God of history. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all thy works. I muse, I, I meditate, I ponder the work of thy hands. And I put it to you, that is a great thing to do if we are feeling low, feeling discouraged. To, as it were, take ourselves in hand and remember, call to mind what God has done. Start with your own life first. 
and just cast your mind back about the fact God even saved you. If he saved you, what a wonderful thing that was to meet with Jesus Christ and to have his life and his light into your life. You know, the, the joy, that, that joy of our sins being forgiven, the, the, the first love of Christ, to have that. And then other ways in which he's answered prayer and provided for you and blessed you and spoken to you, taught you about himself, all of those things. But then from yourself, don't stay there. Go beyond, think of others that you know and how God has blessed them and how he's been at work in their lives. It's a vitally useful means of grace, friends, to remember what God has done in the past. And we can turn to our Bibles and see everything that God has done there for his people. And reading history. Now, I have met with some people who find history a bit uh, boring, but we must remember as God's people that it is his story. And I know history can be poorly written uh, and uh, books and so on can be a bit dry, but history is amazing because just stories, and who doesn't like a good story? And the history of the church, the history of God's people, this is a great thing to pick up and read Christian biography. Go, go and read the life of someone like a Charles Haddon Spurgeon or a George Whitfield or a missionary like William Carey uh, or someone, uh, someone like John Calvin or Martin Luther. Amazing experiences these people had and how they proved God again and again and again. And we can learn from them and see God at work in their lives and draw encouragement from them. I encourage you to go home and pick up that biography that you've been meaning to read for ages and haven't perhaps yet and dig into that that can be a great means of grace for us to remember what God has done and we work those memories upwards from what God has done to the God who has done them uh, and remember that he is the same yesterday, today and forever but finally David don't, didn't only turn to the God of history but he sought the God of the present. He sought the God of the present. He says, I stretch forth my hands unto thee. My soul thirsteth after thee as a thirsty land. From the point of despair and inner turmoil, David looked up and he reached out to the God of his salvation. Uh, Stretching forth of the hands is a, a picture of prayer. If you read in 1 Kings 8 and verse 38, for example, you'll find Solomon there at the dedication of the temple. And he speaks about uh, those when any time of plague comes uh, upon them, if they stretch forth their hands and pray, that the Lord will hear them. And that was the way that most Jewish men did pray. They, they prayed standing and they prayed uh, with their uh, hands outstretched and uh, that symbolizes really the, the setting forth of David's concerns to the Lord he's he's stretching all this out before the Lord uh, because his soul is hungry is thirsting is strongly desirous for God and the imagery that he uses here is powerful he's he, he's thirst for God as a dry and parched barren land thirsts and craves water 
Uh, now, down where I come from in Suffolk, it's one of the driest parts of the country, and it's certainly very dry at the moment. And my grandfather's garden that I help look after, cracks are already starting to appear. Cracks you would only expect to get in July or August because we have not had rain for three or four weeks. I'm glad to hear you've had some here this morning. Um, but as the ground, uh, the ground cracks up, it's like an open mouth wanting water to be poured into it. it. It needs water. And of course, the plants that grow need water. And David says, Lord, that's what I'm like. I'm like, I'm cracking up because I long for God. I want you, Lord. Despite everything else that's going on, he's not praying for uh, Absalom to stop pursuing him. He's not praying for relief particularly, but he wants the Lord. Just Lord, if I have you, then I have everything. I'm thirsting for you. Because he felt dried out, spiritually, and helpless. There was no one else he could turn to. So he turned to the Lord. He desired the Lord's presence, uh, the Lord's comfort, and his blessing in David's life. To bring this to a close, let me make three brief points of application. Uh, this was David reaching out to God in his despair. Uh, we must always reach out to God in our despair as well. But let me note first uh, that sin always leads to trouble and despair. Now, it might not lead to despair in this life, but if sin is not repented of, uh, then that is what eternity will be. Hell is a place of despair. There can be the pleasures of sin for a season, as the Bible puts it, but it is only pleasurable for a season. After that, it brings bitter anguish, sorrow and despair. And as David learned, we can even have a taste of that in this life. How much, therefore, we ought to hate sin and turn from it at every turn. And if you are here this morning and you are not a Christian, if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Saviour, if you can't say that he stood in my place and he received the judgment for my sins, then I say this with all kindness, love to you, friend, that that is what you are facing. Endless despair. But that need not be because the door is still open as we sung. The ear of God is ready to hear the cry of those that call upon him. So call upon him. Ask him to save you from your sin, from death, destruction and despair. And he will, because he sent his son Jesus to live and to die for us. So that's the first thing. Sin always leads to trouble and despair. But secondly, no matter how bad the despair is, we can always reach out to God. We can never get so low that we are beyond God. Now that is not on account of our reach, but on account of the graciousness of our God who always condescends to the lowest. We can be absolutely sunk down in despondency, in grief and sorrow, despair. And yet God is still there. 
because this is what David does. He's in despair, but he reaches out to God, and he, as it were, makes contact. He touches God, because God is a God of great compassion and condescension. Uh, he is with those that are low. He gives grace to the humble, but resists the proud. And thirdly, and finally, uh, we see in this psalm how prayer changes us. Prayer changes us. Because <coughs> David has started off uh, despairing, uh, but as, you, as the psalm goes, uh, and e even here in verses 5 and 6, you can sense uh, an uplift in David's consciousness. He's now remembering what God has done. He's thinking upon God's gracious and kind acts to him. And is that not true for all of us? We put off prayer for one reason or another. As soon as we get down on our knees, start to pour out our souls before the Lord, our perspective starts to change. We start to call to mind the wonderful character of our God, what he has done. And our souls can be lifted. So sin brings trouble and despair but there is no despair beyond the reach of God and thirdly prayer changes things if afflictions like David suffered bring us to pray as he did welcome those afflictions because if they put us on our knees they are good things because if we are on our knees we are in the best of places because as this pulpit says our help is not in ourselves it's in the name of the Lord, made heaven and earth. Amen.